Welcome back to Jamie All Over. Today I'm joined with an Instagram follower. I think she's a podcast listener. We'll find out. But she had DM'd me on Instagram and we chat about a bunch of things. But one of the things that we were discussing were the recent horse deaths at all of the racetracks. And she has really strong ties to horse racing in general. So I wanted to bring her on to talk about this topic. Please welcome Mia Wilson. Thank you, Jamie. I really, I'm just so grateful to have a listener and a animal lover to talk to and just have empathy. That's the whole reason I ended up listening to and be a true lover of your podcast because I believe you lead with empathy. Aw, thank you. Okay, so that solves my question. So you do listen to the podcast. I didn't know if you were just one of my Instagram friends or if you were also a podcast listener. So thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Podcast first, Instagram second, and then looking at your Instagram experiences in life can either break you or make you better. And when you're able to connect through empathy, I think that's what makes the difference in people. So enjoy you. Oh, very much. I appreciate that so much. So I don't know all that much about the horse racing industry. I do know that PETA has done some investigations on it. I've read those reports. I see in the news, and it almost seems like it's happening a lot more lately, that a lot of horses are being put down on the racetrack if they get injured. Let's let the listeners know your history and your dad's history with it, because I would almost consider you to be an expert on the subject since you kind of grew up in this. So I'm so glad to have you here, because like I said, I don't really know all that much about it, and I would like to learn. It's a sad industry, at least to me. I'm 43, just to give you an age range. And my father was a private clocker. He worked with the Baydeckers. The Baydeckers were the owners of Hollywood Park. As far as to my knowledge, my father started clocking in 1970. He started getting published in 71 with the Baydeckers. And... I essentially grew up on the racetrack. I have a very strange story. (laughs) My father basically raised me alone. And I was about three, maybe four, when I started going to the track in the morning, in the dark, for morning workouts. Because that's when horses work out. And that's what clockers do. They sit in the dark, in the rain, in the cold. (laughs) every day and try to identify a horse and time them and essentially have an inside track into betting. Mm, Okay. So even growing up, it was a very strange thing to walk around and be like, well, my dad's a clocker and just having everyone have a blank stare, every teacher, every coach. (laughs) Like, what the hell are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, even to this day, I don't think many people would know what that occupation is. Unless you're in horse racing. Exactly. Exactly. Like I said, it's a very strange, different profession. You wake up about four in the morning to get on the track at 4.30 to get there before everybody has entered the track. Because unlike the day of racing, they are not wearing certain colors. So you can't easily identify a horse in order to clock them, to have a better read on how they would run in a race, let's say a week or month down the road. You need to be able to memorize what a horse looks like in the stall in the morning versus what they look like in colors to know who you're clocking. (laughs) Okay, so this is interesting. So this kind of gives me a clue that maybe the horse owners 
aren't in collaboration with the clockers, because otherwise I would think then they would say, "Okay, this is so-and-so horse. Go ahead and take your time. So he's kind of doing this independently is what I'm gathering. Exactly. And the truth, the clockers were hated Mm. by the owners and the trainers when clockers first got onto the scene. An owner and trainer, Julio Canani, he passed away. He was one of the greatest, uh, let's say, winners I wouldn't say people, Mm -hmm. but uh, one of the greatest winners as far as collection on being in the winner's circle. Well, he used to love and openly talked about fucking with the clockers, that he would put someone else's saddle, some other owners. (laughs) He would deliberately try to evade the clockers knowing who his horses were so that he would have the inside track. Okay. Very interesting ego-run industry. Yeah, it sounds like it. So where was this published? And was it primarily, I guess, for the people who were betting on the horses? So the Baydeckers, they had two things. Bud Baydecker, who was the owner, he had a son, Bob, and they started the Clockers Report. And that started at Hollywood Park. They then, in turn, when they employed private clockers in the Clocker Report, they then started out with tip sheets. So they not only sold the clockers report to anyone on the track, they then came out with pink tip sheets, which a lot of people that are old school on the track, they would absolutely (laughs) rant and rave because some people had green tip sheets that later on came down the line and that was how they distinguished themselves was the Baydeckers clockers report and then they introduced tip sheets onto Hollywood Park. What was that like for you as a child going to the racetrack? And at what point did you start to realize there's something wrong about all of this? Well, I would say four years old. I thought there was something wrong about it because I remember the first time I heard and saw a horse die during morning clocking. And it's really horrific. It's almost like the only way I can describe it is like Silence of the Lambs when Jodie Foster is talking about the screaming of the lambs, Mm. because the racetrack, when there's no one in the stands, everything echoes. You can hear the horse breath down on the racetrack, working out in the stands, because there's there's no sound. There's no conversations. There's no music. There's nothing but the echo of breathing, the hooves on the turf. And then when a horse takes a tumble, the screaming of the pain, I just... I I remember crying and crying and then my dad getting upset that I was making a scene. Mm. (laughs) It's a terrible industry. Let's just put it that way. It's a gambling industry of addiction, abuse, adrenaline pumping, and then you mix in the abuse of horses on the side. I don't have a lot of good things to say. How did you reconcile that growing up? Like this is the industry that your father is in and you feeling so strongly against it? I, well, we had a, it was hard. I won't lie. And anyone that knew both of us, we were close, but we were very different. And I was openly hurt by the pain of animals that I saw. I was one of those kids that cried at the zoo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I really kind of spread all across the board. I mean, SeaWorld was just, I was crying in the car on the way to go. Did not want to see it. From a young age, Wow. the empathy for animals overrid 
the pride of what my father was doing. I was very proud of my dad because he was wonderful at what he did. He made a huge contribution to the profession that he was a part of. But at the same time, having an ethical and moral dilemma from the time I can remember, we butted heads about a lot of things. That has to be hard. And I was reading this wonderful article about him and he passed away in 2020. I'm so sorry. He apparently is the only person to be laid to rest at Santa Anita. Yes. And I specifically did that for him to honor who he was. That was not about me. Who I wanted him to be was very different from who he was. And to acknowledge and honor who he was, he wanted to be at the track. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Everyone that knew him, I mean, he worked Christmas Day. He worked Thanksgiving Day. There was not a single morning that he did not get up and go to work. He was done with work at the track at 1030. He would make his phone calls to his boss. He'd be done with work at 1115 every single day of his adult life that I remember. There was never a time he had to leave for work in the afternoon or in the evening. But at the same time, I don't have a single Christmas memory of waking up with him in the house. So it's a very strange flip-flop of appreciation, recognition. Yeah, I could see that's like two sides of the spectrum. And he did raise you as a single father, which I give him so much credit for doing that. For you as a child, it just must have been so confusing to have these dichotomies. So I want to get into more of these horses. You mentioned a heartbreaking story of witnessing a horse being put down and screaming in pain prior to that. Why is it that they have not put in place a program? I mean, aside from thinking that this whole industry should end, baby steps before that even, how come these horses are just put down? Do they believe it's too expensive to rehab them? Is it impossible to rehab them? What is the issue there? Depending on the break, it's incredibly hard to rehab them. A lot of the times, the break that happens, I think bacteria will also get in the bloodstream. Really? It's really hard to explain because horse racing, they usually start training them at fillies, Mm -hmm. which is a year and a half. Well, horses aren't fully grown until they're six years old. Exactly. Imagine taking a child and trying to have them do... Olympic gymnastics and start them at, let's say, five or six, which is how they used to do it in Russia, like Nadia Komenichi. Mm-hmm. They're tiny. They are not going to resist. They're lighter. Bones are not fully even grown when they're broken. So it's uh, it's a multi-layered problem, let's put it that way. It's awful. Yeah, I was reading about that. It's like they take these horses when they're, like you mentioned, they're not fully grown until they're about six years old and they start them so much earlier. And it's like the equivalent of like a first grader. Exactly. Exactly. And everything about it is completely unnatural. So horses in the wild, there's no such thing as a bit in their mouth. Mm -hmm. They are never going to have something metal in their mouth so that they can't shut their jaw. So First and foremost, everything about the structure of the bridle that is used while horse racing, there's nothing comparable to what a horse would go through in nature. The bridle, the domestication of horses without the bit, okay, fine, not torture, but the bit in the mouth, god awful. Yeah, it's kind of like they're suffocating and especially at running at their high speeds with the bit, they feel like they're suffocating the whole time. Oh yeah, and 
the other thing about running at that high speed, that doesn't happen in nature with horses. Horses are herd animals. Yes, horses do run in the wild. They do not run at high speed. Like 40 miles an hour. Right, exactly. There is no predator that is going to run after a herd of horses at 100 miles an hour for long speeds. That does not happen. Yeah. And my God, I mean, the gate, the metal gate that the horses are in, uh, how many horses have gotten hurt in the gate? And that's why they stumble coming out of the gate. They have already broken a bone in the gate before the gate is lifted. I could really go on and on. Also, there's the isolation. So like you mentioned, they're herd animals, but for about 23 <sighs> hours a day, they are left in this small little, I don't know, what what is it called where they're kept in the stable? The stalls. The stalls. And they're yes. alone for 23 hours a day. And then they come out for that one hour to do this racing. Right. It's right. awful. Maybe a little bit more for practice, which you mentioned, but for the most part, they're alone in a stall. Exactly. And now we are in a time where we are using equine therapy for wounded warriors coming home to battle their PTSD. So there are studies that horses are such empathetic beings, they are used to help suffering human beings. And now we make them suffer in front of crowds for profit, entertainment, America's obsession with brutality. I'm angry. Yeah, no, and I don't think a lot of people know that the horses are slaughtered at the end of their running career oh. for the most part. They're bled out. They're hung Horrific. and they're they're bled out. There's three ways. There's we'll do a shotgun. Mm, maybe 50% of the time the first shot works. The horse's skull is incredibly thick. The brain is farther back. It is not like a cow. They do the, I think there's another way, an electric way, and then they have horrific slaughterhouses that will put them upside down while they are alive and slit their jugular. It's, it's just horrific. And that's considered when they're spent, which I just I hate that term. It's so sad. And right. when would you say in their career does this typically happen? Well, if they don't perform to someone's wanting or liking, that's usually where they go. Because if they don't perform well, they will not be a sire or a mare that would be profitable to have more horses to give birth to more. You know, you've got to win a couple of races in order to be considered valuable, worth the value that they have bought the horse for. They insure the horses from the day that they buy them. So they've got a little policy on them that when they do break down and die, they get their money back and more. It sounds ridiculous. I, I don't understand how it's not Rico. It's a racket. It's a true racket. And it's a horrible thing to say that as someone that grew up in the industry, but it doesn't make a lot of sense when you look at things from the outside. Absolutely. This sport has been glorified, but at the same time been so Dirty from the damn beginning. You can't write it. Hollywood Park, for some, a beautiful place. Hollywood Park, for me, I grew up behind the curtain of Wizard of Oz. Mm. Hollywood Park was connected to the casino to ensure that the gamblers from the casino would come over to the racetrack and vice versa so that the sad, alcoholic gamblers from the racetrack would just climb over the bridge, stay in the casino till the next day, and then come back and bet in the morning. Oh, gosh. But the Hollywood Park Casino and Hollywood Park, people used to make jokes about all the hookers that would walk around there. Well, there was a pimp 
that was very, very well known in all of Los Angeles. He owned the two motels right next to Hollywood Park in between Hollywood Park and the Forum. Hmm. Everyone was connected and dirty in the industry. It's very hard to find someone that had clean hands. There's a few people that prided themselves on not drugging the horses, on not putting their horses on pain medication so that they would run hurt. Janine Sahadi is one of them. Aside from being a woman in the industry, she was a clean runner and she was not liked. <laughs> Just put it that way. It's awful. And for those wondering, Hollywood Park, it's not in Hollywood proper, but it is in Los Angeles. It's in Inglewood, I believe, near LAX, a couple minutes from downtown LA. Well, it's now SoFi Stadium. When Hollywood Park closed, they decided they had to get in um, a new football stadium. Mm-hmm. These NFL players... Every time they broke a leg, if they couldn't survive, what would happen to the sport of football? It would not exist. But yet we think this is okay in horse racing. Yes, it's uh, it's strange. Strange to say the least, especially since they've done away with dog racing, that every dog track in America has closed. I think there's a couple of dark industry. I mean, there's always going to be dark industry, but there's been a reckoning for how dogs are treated but not a reckoning with how horses have been treated and glorifying in the brutality. I, I don't know if it's an addiction to group think, an addiction to adrenaline when there's a whole stadium of people, you know, drinking alcohol with you that are side by side, going barbarian mode, cheering. I mean, this goes back to Roman times. It's part of it's the dark side of humanity. And why do we embrace it and glorify it? I just don't understand. Well, I also think a lot of people don't even know any of this. You know, they look at something like the Kentucky Derby and they see these ostentatious hats and they see, you know, the mint juleps and they think it's like this high society thing. And they think it's just a fun outing to go to the racetrack. And I feel like a lot of people don't even really know what is going on and all of the abuse that is happening to these animals. True. They don't know and they don't want to know. I think it's a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. I know it's there, but I don't want to really know the details. <laughs> I think that's a very American thing. I was trying to get a figure on the stats of the horse deaths due to the horse racing per year. And it's kind of difficult to get because I was realizing that even the stats don't take into account the ones that die in training or in the stable or the stall rather. Right. Or on a private farm. Do you have an idea of the stats? Well, immeasurable is how I'd put it from the time horse racing has started. They say it's about 100000 a year. Horse Racing Wrongs is a great website. The writer behind that, he actually does Freedom of Information Act. So he will petition the county to have the county that the horses have died in, to have the horse deaths, the necropsy, if it's been put, whether they were on a track or they were a private farm. Okay. Wow. Wait, you said 100,000. Is that in total since the sport started or per year? Per year. Per year. Okay, that's insane because I was reading 2000 a year and I thought that was awful. Oh, no, no. Minimum 100,000 a year horses die across all America, whether it's a legitimate track, an illegitimate track, a private, private farm. If they pass away in the stall, once you actually add up where, who died versus just on the track in front of audiences, the low number is what happens in front of an audience. 
the true number is terrifying. Oh, wow. So that's a lot worse than I even thought it was. Okay, so we saw that, was it Churchill Downs? Who recently had to close due to the amount of deaths? Was it Churchill Downs? Yes. Okay. Yes. First time ever. First time ever. It's progress, but... Is it true that they just moved their practices to another racetrack? They will probably do an investigation just like they did at Santa Anita. I think it was 2018 or 2019. They had 34 horses. It was every day of racing in front of an audience that a horse died. Oh, if I'm yeah, I could I could be wrong or it's every other day is what they averaged out to. And then they did a little investigation whether it was the natural dirt versus the synthetic dirt that they brought in? Or was it that the trainers were giving the horses something so that their lungs don't bleed too much? Or that they were on a pain medication? They try to spread it out as to all the factors instead of it's horse racing. <laughs> it's just Oh my god. So after the investigation, nothing happened, I'm guessing. And it was just back to business no. as usual. Yeah. Exactly. Ugh. Exactly. Awful. What can be done? I mean, what we're doing right now is spreading awareness. What else can we do to shut this down? Protests. Talk about it. I don't understand why there are not bills brought before the House of Representatives or the Senate office, especially because if they're bringing bills forward for wounded warriors, for PTSD survivors to have access to health care and equine therapy is part of that, well, goddammit, flip the script. <laughs> You can't abuse an animal that you're saying is helping humans be better humans. Even if the animal isn't helping us in any way, we still can't abuse animals, you know. But yeah, I see what, true, you're, say I see true. what you're saying. Well, we've made a breakthrough in certain mental health, mental health awareness, mental health as in talking about it, normalizing it, having awareness of what actual PTSD is. And it doesn't just happen to men coming home from war. It can be uh, women coming out of abusive relationships mm -hmm. <laughs> that have experienced domestic abuse that equine therapy is huge for. Yeah, I was just actually watching an amazing documentary called The Disruptors. They spell it with an O at the end. It's funny. I was like, what is the actual spelling of The Disruptors? Is it E-R-S or O-R-S? And apparently both spellings are correct, but this documentary uses the O. It was about ADHD. One of the therapies was equine therapy, and they showed this boy with severe ADHD who would go meet with a horse every week and walk around with his horse and get therapy that way. Oh, yeah. Especially with autism. Horses, the way they connect, they are not going to look you in the eye. And that is a huge thing from what I've read with autism. There is certain triggers that can happen and an overwhelming of sensory input. And horses are the same. Just a strange little twitch in the shoulder of a horse has a connection and a communication. When they're doing their shivering and shaking, they're uncomfortable. When they let out a huge yawn or they're letting go of anxiety and able to acknowledge and connect with another being. They're not a threat to children. And I think children and anyone with a sensory input issue can absolutely be aware that the horse is not going to hurt them. I had on Marissa Underwood, who is Miss Montana. She is a very outspoken animal advocate and vegan. And 
in her younger years, she was into horseback riding. And she Mm -hmm. sadly, you know, because she did love it, decided that due to her animal advocacy, she had to step away from horseback riding. What are your thoughts on that? Well, like I said, I think the bit is a huge problem, but a lot of horseback riders have a huge, huge connection with their horse. They treat them very differently than a thoroughbred racehorse. You're talking about people that come into the stall and hand feed their horses. So it's, I think it's a very different connection, a very different sport. Mm-hmm. Horses do jump over things in nature. So jumping over a log, not, not a huge thing. That to me is not abuse. If you overwork a horse, if you do not treat them properly, then that's a problem. So I really think that horseback riding, trail riding, that is on an individual basis as far as abuse. I don't think horseback riding, jumping, that that's abuse. I don't really like barrel racing. I don't think that is normal. I'm not a Western barrel racer fan. I think that should be shut down. But as far as little kids horseback riding, adults horseback riding, 100%. I think that's on an individual abusive basis. As a kid, I loved horseback riding and I loved connecting with horses in that way. But then, you know, as I became more and more an animal advocate and becoming an animal activist, I will not do it anymore just because I feel like whether they're treated well or not, they're not Mm -hmm. ours to use for entertainment or for leisure. I personally don't know if the horse wants to be doing that. Right. I see where you're coming from with there's far less abuse in those situations, but I'm kind of left with the question, do they want to be doing that? And if they don't want to be doing that, I wouldn't want to force them to. For sure. I grew up horseback riding. I only horseback rode for maybe three years. I took a huge, huge fall The horse got spooked by the wires. There was a flash, a spark, and the horse threw me. And Mm -hmm. the horse being that scared, scared me even more. Mm -hmm. So I didn't stop horseback riding because I was scared of falling off. It was in that moment of like, oh my gosh, in this little, little area where we're training, you know, the little training circle, which you know, even those, they're not big. It's not like they get to really stretch their legs and run and seeing this horse freak out in an enclosed space, terrified for its life. I didn't horseback ride again. I'm not going to lie. I miss it. I really, really loved it. That's that's the double-edged sword Mm -hmm. to love a being so much, but know that my interaction with them is not really healthy for them. Are there ways that we can interact with horses in an ethical way? Are there sanctuaries? Or maybe we shouldn't be interacting with them. (laughs) We should leave them be. Like, what are your thoughts on it? There are tons of sanctuaries. There's a sky sanctuary in Oregon. There's a woman, she goes all over the country. Another one is OK Tacos. They go all over the country to kill pens, saving animals. The horse-drawn carriages that we see in New York City and other cities, and these horses are overworked, they're starving, they're hot, they're dehydrated. Collapsing on the street. This needs to stop. Have you seen that the Gentle Barn out of Santa Clarita, they developed a horseless carriage? It's basically this beautiful electric carriage that they don't need a horse to pull, and it can replace all of the horse-drawn carriages. Oh, that's amazing. It is. I have not heard of that. Yeah. But I've heard of Gentle Barn. Yeah. I would love to bring more awareness to that. 
and get involved with pushing this onto the cities where we see this. You know, I see it everywhere. And it's just, uh, it's like, on one hand, it's like, oh my gosh, you love to see a horse out in public. But then on the other hand, it's like, no, that's just so cruel. So cruel. We don't need to do it. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Especially because you can see the fear in horses' eyes. I don't understand how people can ignore what their eyes see. People can ignore a lot. They can justify a lot. It's insane to me. It's insane. For the longest time, it just made me question humanity in general because I'm just like, who am I living amongst? All these men that have been so brainwashed into thinking that that's what's masculine, that's what's manly. It's like if you actually think about what they're doing, it's the least manly thing in the world when you're taking advantage of and torturing innocent beings, defenseless. That's a bully. That's not a masculine man. The masculine man is the one that protects. Exactly. You know, I was reading about this heartbreaking story. A mother of three, Catherine Kasanoff. She was 54 years old. She lived in Westchester, New York. And on May 27th, she wrote her last and final note on Facebook announcing that she was ending her life with assisted suicide in Switzerland because her husband was just so terrible to her. I've watched these videos that she took of him degrading her, calling her ugly, calling her old, saying that he was going to post her in her underwear on YouTube, just so abusive. And then he did this in front of their three children as well. I saw a video of one of the daughters saying, mommy, don't make me go with that crazy man. Just awful. By the way, she had terminal cancer. Somehow he convinced the court to give him custody of the three children. She could not see them. And the heartbreak was all too much for her. And she knew she was dying of cancer. She couldn't go through chemo and radiation. She couldn't go through it again. And she went to Switzerland and had assisted suicide. I was so triggered. And I think you were as well because we talked about this. But I was so triggered by watching these videos of her husband degrading her in this way. Degrading? I I think dehumanizing. Mm. Like there's just such disdain that to talk that way to another human being, it's, um, oh, it haunts you. It does. Do you understand why she did what she did? Because I know you yourself, you're a cancer survivor and that's amazing. And you also have an ex-husband who cheated on you while you had cancer. Yes. Yeah, you understand this on a whole other level than I ever could. She said it was just four years of it. She couldn't do it anymore. What kind of mind state do you think she was in? Well, I understand the decision of I can't be less than myself any more than I am. Cancer takes a lot out of you. Chemo totally changes people. I had a very adverse reaction to chemo. I had aphasia for a year and a half. So the idea of going through that again, I would not. And I've made that clear to everybody in my life. If the cancer comes back, I'll do surgery. I will never again do chemo. I'm not going to be any less than what I am now. It reminds me of Sansa Stark in Game of Thrones. Like if I'm going to die, I'm going to die who I am, recognizing who I am when I leave. I want to leave with dignity. But I have the displeasure or the saving grace of I don't have children. So I don't know if I would have the same point of view. I was pregnant when they found the cancer. I lost my still hard to talk about. I'm so I'm so, <sighs> so sorry. I, I was it's okay. I was married and I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer 
two months after our first wedding anniversary while I was pregnant. And that's how they found the cancer, because I was pregnant. I miscarried at 14 and a half weeks and went into life-saving surgery 24 hours later. And in the midst of my battle, my ex-husband had an emotional and a physical affair with his older brother's ex-girlfriend. Oh, my goodness. Not just someone random, someone that had been in his life and his family's life for a very long time. While she was publicly posting that I was an inspiration in my cancer battle. It was really ugly. Wow. To the point it's comical. When we separated, he went public with his person. I wouldn't say a woman. Mm -hmm. Because when another woman is pregnant with a cancer battle, and that's your opportunity to go after a man. I'm, it makes me question humanity, that people like this exist. Oh, yes. I sent her a message, and she had him defend her. She's <laughs> just, oh, God. Yeah, there's there's really horrific people out there. And finding that out while you're sick and your whole world has been flipped upside down, telling your parent I was just diagnosed with cancer. I, I'm in ICU. These are real life shattering events. And to have an outside person be like, well, this is a great time to hop on your man. It's really strange. It's so strange. And obviously, what's even more of a betrayal, I would assume, is that your husband did this to you. You know, it's supposed to be in sickness and in health. That's what you're promising the person. And then the moment you are sick, he goes and he betrays you like this. And sadly, I've heard of this happening before. It's like when people are at the point where they really, really need someone and they need to step up and be responsible. It's like that's the moment that they break or something and they can't handle the responsibility and they do the complete opposite thing that they should be doing. And it just it blows my mind. It blows my mind that someone could do that to you or anyone else in that situation. Knowing like that their actions can even contribute to you becoming even more unhealthy. Uh, yes. <laughs> but then also the gift of having somebody toxic removed from your life, whether you want them there or not, whether you knew they were toxic or not, whether your entire relationship was essentially a facade that mm-hmm. they put on and you never knew the truth. As long as they leave, you have a chance to heal. Yes. Like cancer. Yes. You got to remove it. Yes, or- you got you got to cut it out. Cut cut that person <laughs> yes. out. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And you're never going to get well staying where you were sick. Right. And I one of my friends, she's a ayurvedic teacher and a, a doula and she made a casual joke but it always hit me. She's like, you know, in my background, if you get a disease in your reproductive organs while you're in a relationship, it's a reflection of the toxic relationship. It's infected your reproductive organs. Your body is rejecting that toxic person. Now, I don't know if that's real, but I had ovarian cancer while I was pregnant to a a monster. So, Well, you know, I mean, stress is a factor that I think is overlooked so much in people being unhealthy physically. It's hard for them to equate the two. Stress is a mental thing, right? 
So it's like, oh, how can that present physically? But it does, whether it's back pain, whether it's cancer, it does. It absolutely does. They're connected. Especially with you're in a bad relationship, Mm -hmm. your body holds on to it. No matter how much our brain is trying to justify, trying to heal that person, trying to see the better part of them or who they were in the beginning, our minds and our hearts try so hard to make it a better situation than it actually is. And then our bodies are like, please stop. (laughs) Yeah, because it has to go somewhere. It has to go somewhere. That energy, that negativity, it stays. I agree with you. I think, you know, you were, although it didn't feel like this at the time, you were given a gift to be shown who this person was. And maybe you knew along the way, but you weren't going to take those steps to get him out of your life until something this big happened. Yes. We have it ingrained in us like, oh, we just have to try harder. Or is it us? Because they blame us. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I mean, my recovery from surgery, I was bedridden for four months. I couldn't move. I couldn't hold water. I I cannot tell you how, how sick I was. And then that mother effer that I was married to would roll over with his morning wood thinking I need to do something about it. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it was one of those moments like he'd get upset because I'd laugh. Or I'd yell at him. I'm like, that actually has nothing to do with me. That is just biology. I'm not turning you on. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I can't even help you right now. So maybe you should handle your little boy stuff. Because that's what it is. Boys will be boys. Oh, it's just a man being a man. There's a reason I'm single. I'm proudly single. (laughs) I don't want to deal with anyone's nonsense. Good for you. (laughs) I tried dating a couple times and I got what I needed. And I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, I'm good too. I'm good until I meet the person who's not like that and who's actually an exceptional person. We've seen how detrimental being with someone like that can be. And it holds you back. It can make you sick. It just doesn't allow you to live your fullest life. And it's so much better to be alone and flourish and be the person you're supposed to be than to just sacrifice all of that to be in a relationship. doesn't make sense. Right. I don't hate on love. I want someone I admire, I respect, I look up to. I want to be better when they're around. They should want to be better when they're with me. Admiration for your partner, respect for your partner, support for your partner as they are as a human being, not just what they do for you in the bedroom. There is so much more to a relationship than the physical side. And how humiliating and aggravating to have to go and get tested because your partner has been dishonest with you and you have no idea what they've exposed you to. How can you pretend that you view me as a human being worthy of friendship when you don't view me as a human being worthy of honesty? These people will jump through hoops to justify doing that. And I think it's subconscious just so they can live with themselves because Even the worst person out there doesn't think that they're a bad person. They find ways to justify their behavior. And that goes back to, well, you know what? I woke up and I was hard and she wouldn't she wouldn't sleep with me, even though she's lying there sick. And so I deserve to go out and do what I'm doing. See, even you say it out loud, it sounds ridiculous and childish. Yeah. I'm a petulant child. I need my needs met. And that's all that matters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't. 
I think the way that we are going, whether it's this horse racing, whether it's marriage and people cheating and all of this, there are so many things that we are just ignoring and not talking about because they're uncomfortable. But it leads to the status quo, which needs to change. And the only way to change the status quo in any situation is to talk about it and bring light to it and bring awareness to it. Right. I just want to thank you so much for all of your input. I think you're such an amazing, strong woman. I'm so sorry for what your stupid ex put you through, but I'm glad you realized your worth. Thank you, Jamie. Really, just I'm, I'm so grateful to, like I said, have someone listen because having the courage to speak about it, it takes a while to even get there. But thank you. You are amazing, and I love everything that you're doing. And having a voice for the voiceless, I think, is one of the greatest things that we can do on this earth. Thank you again for coming on here and being so open and talking about subjects that I know must be really difficult to talk about. But I do think that your story and everything that you've shared is going to bring a lot of awareness and a lot of help to animals and to people. So thank you so much for being here, Mia. Where can people find you? Do you want followers or do you want to stay anonymous? Oh, I'm okay with that. I mean, I'm loud and proud. (laughs) Can't shut me up. I'm on Instagram. I'm at Miss underscore Miawana. Thank you for listening. I feel these four walls closing in. Face up against the glass. I'm looking out. Is this my life? I'm wondering It happened so fast How do I turn this thing around? Is this the bed I chose to make? It's greener pastures I'm thinking about mm. Wide open spaces far away All I want is the wind in my hair To face the fear but not feel scared
就大